Shalom, Mishpokah. Welcome to this latest Kadiva talk. I want to share with you today about vigilance. Effective leadership maintains constant vigilance. Vigilant leaders demonstrate personal accountability and ownership for decisions, results, and consequences. They have a deep understanding of the power of discipline, execution, and determination. Vigilant leaders know how to execute effectively. To become a more vigilant leader by picking up on weak signals of potential opportunities and or threats and being proactive rather than reactive. And I want to share again about Kodak Films. Kodak Film and Photography was a Fortune 500 company that dominated the film industry for a century. However, it failed to adapt to the digital camera technology and market needs. They weren't vigilant to the winds of change. Kodak filed for bankruptcy in 2012. It's a sad tale of a giant corporation that had zero situational awareness of the market and changing technologies. Their leadership weren't vigilant. We are told in the Bible to be vigilant. In 1 Peter 5, verses 8 and 9, it says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. Vigilant in the Greek is Gregorio, to be vigilant, watchful, to be cautious, to give strict attention to, watchful, especially to avoid danger. Shaul uses this phrase frequently. It's a warrior's phrase. In Ephesians 6, verse 13, it says, So take up every piece of war equipment God provides, so that when the evil day comes, you'll be able to resist, and when the battle is won, you will be standing. Vigilance is a critical foundational trait of the watchman. The Hebrew word for watchman is safah, which means watchman, watch, to lean forward, to peer into the distance. By implication, it means to observe, behold, wait for, or keep the watch. The watchman's job is a critical, vital one. The role of a watchman is to discern evil and sin while watching for the prophetic word of God. The role of the watchman is vital to a full understanding of the prophetic work of God in the end times. Spiritual warfare is not a metaphor. It's real and very dangerous. It's the reason why we're commanded to fear not. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 7, it says, For God gave us a spirit who produces not timidity, but power, love, and self-discipline. In the heat of the battle and the fog of war, every warrior feels the temptation to run from the fight. Like soldiers, we must be reminded to stand firm, to remember that there is a cause, that our fellow comrades, family, congregates need defending, and the enemy must be vanquished. We must steel ourselves against whatever fear the threat provokes and resolve to stand our ground. This is what spiritual strength looks like on the ground. Nehemiah is a perfect example of vigilance in an effective leader. Nehemiah is all about the restoration of community after an extended period of time when there was none. This is after 70 years of exile in Babylon, which then became Persia. Nehemiah means the Lord is compassionate. The root word of Nehemiah is Nachamu, which means comfort. Nehemiah was a son of Hachaliah. In Nehemiah 1.1, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it was in the month of Kislev in the 20th year as I was in Shushan, the capital. Nehemiah was probably of the tribe of Judah, and his career took place in the second half of the 5th century BC. Nehemiah was the cupbearer for the king, which is not a servant position, but one of a responsible office, as the king has an intimate relationship and speaks freely with Nehemiah. In fact, the king entrusted Nehemiah with great credentials and wealth. The book of Nehemiah takes place at the beginning of the post-exilic period when Israel was beginning to be restored after the 70 years of exile. The time frame is in the 20th year of 
Atikshasta, king of Persia, 445 to 444 BC, and begins in the capital of Persia, Susa. The key to Nehemiah is restoration, political, and physical. Ezra had preceded Nehemiah to Israel with about 1,800 Jewish people. They had begun the restoration of the temple, but had fallen short of restoring the city and the infrastructure. Ezra's adversaries had effectively stopped the progress. The city of Jerusalem lay in disrepair and needed a new decree and vision to begin work. And Nehemiah, a vigilant, courageous man of character, ability, and action, saw the opportunity on the horizon. Now, remember, that that's what a vigilant watchman does, looking into the future to seize upon these opportunities that prevail themselves to us. Many people have some of these character traits, but few in history have them all. History records Nehemiah as a vigilant man of great vision, compassion, and tenacity. He never gave up. In Nehemiah 1, in the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, it was in the month of Kislev, in the 20th years I was in Shushan, the capital. Verse 2, that Hananiah, one of my kinsmen, came out of Judah with some men, and I asked about the remnant of Judeans who had escaped the exile and about Yerushalayim. See, Nehemiah bothered to ask. He inquired. He was vigilant. He inquired of his kinsmen's welfare as he saw an open door, an opportunity. In Nehemiah 1, verse 3, they answered me, the remnant of the exile left there in the province are in great distress. They're held in contempt. The wall of Yerushalayim is in ruins, and its gates have been completely burned up. The walls are in ruin, the gates burned up, recalls the destruction and burning of Jerusalem when attacked by Nebuchadnezzar and his chief officers, Nebuzaradan, 140 years earlier. Nehemiah has situational awareness, the main ingredient of vigilance. He understands the stress and the fright of the people living in Jerusalem without protection. Nehemiah understands the immediate threat to the remnant living there that had returned from Persia. Nehemiah weeps and mourns before God about the current conditions within Jerusalem. Nehemiah was tapped into God's heart. Nehemiah is mourning over what God is mourning about, and this is key to all prayer and intercession. In verse 5 of Nehemiah 1, I said, Please, Ananiah, God of heaven, you great and fearsome God, who keeps his covenant and extends grace to those who love him and observe his mitzvah, let your ear now be attentive and your eyes be open, so that you will listen to the prayer of your servant, which I am praying for before you these days, day and night, for the people of Israel, your servants, even as I confess the sins of the people of Israel that we have committed against you. Yes, I and my father's house have sinned. We have deeply offended you. We haven't observed the mitzvah, laws, or rulings you ordered your servant Moshe. Remember, please, the word you gave through your servant Moshe. If you break faith, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me, observe my mitzvah, and obey them, then, even if your scattered ones are in the most distant part of heaven, nevertheless, I will collect them from there and bring them to this place I've chosen for bearing my name. Verse 10 says, Now these are your servants, your people, whom you have redeemed by your great power and strong hand. Adonai, please let your ear now be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who take joy in fearing your name. Please let your servant succeed today and win this man's compassion. For I was the king's personal attendant. By recalling Israel's history, Nehemiah reminds God of his commitment, his promises and compassion upon and for Israel. He's quoting Deuteronomy 4, verses 25 through 30. Nehemiah is asking specifically for favor with King Artaxasta. As Yeshua states, we have not because we ask not. Nehemiah gives us a significant and powerful model regarding our own prayer and petitions to rebuild and seek God. In Nehemiah 2, starting at verse 1, in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of Artaxasta, the king, it happened that I took the wine and brought it to the king. 
Prior then, I had never appeared sad in his presence. So God follows his own timeline. We see the new year as a time of new beginnings when he approaches the king. In verse 2 of Nehemiah 2, the king asks, why do you look so sad? You're not sick, so this must be some deep inner grief. And at this, I became very fearful. As I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should I look sad when the city, the place where my ancestors' tombs are, lies in ruins and its gates are completely burned up? Verse 4, the king asked me, what is it that you want? And I prayed to the God of heaven. You know, this is the hardest thing for believers today to understand, to wait and seek God before answering. Nehemiah not only had great vigilance, but he had great wisdom. He didn't answer off the cuff. In verse 5 of Nehemiah 2, then said to the king, if it pleases the king, if your servant has won your favor, send me to Judah, to the city of my ancestors' tombs, so that I can rebuild it. With the queen sitting next to him, the king asked me, how long is your trip going to take? When will you return? So it pleased the king to send me, and I gave him a time. Then I said to the king, if it pleases the king, have letters given to me for the governors of the territory beyond the Euphrates River, so that they will let me pass through until I reach Yehuda. And also a letter for Asaph, the supervisor of the royal force, so that he'll give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress belonging to the house for the city wall and for the house I'll be occupying. The king gave me these according to the good hand of my God on me. Verse 9, I went to the governors of the territories beyond the river and gave them the king's letters. The king had sent with me an escort of army captains and cavalry. The king grants Nehemiah's request and grants them all that he asked for. Nehemiah gave a detailed instructions concerning what he wanted. He was vigilant and prepared. However, in verse 10 of chapter 2 of Nehemiah, when Sanballat the Horoni and Toviah, the servant, the Ammoni, heard about this, they were very displeased that someone had come to promote the welfare of the people of Israel. Most of the book of Nehemiah deals with opposition to what God is doing, which gave great cause for extreme vigilance by Nehemiah. And, and I'm going to pause here before we move on, because this isn't relegated just to ministry. This isn't relegated just to uh, what we do here in the congregation. But this is for, if you're a father, if you're a mother, if you have a family, you have responsibilities, and you have to have extreme vigilance, because there are those out there, as we read earlier, the enemy himself, who stalks around like a roaring lion waiting to consume. If you're a business owner, you can rest assured you've got competition that doesn't like what you're doing and seeks to undermine you and destroy your business. So there's always going to be opposition to the bigger plan. And the bigger the plan, the bigger the opposition. And so it requires extreme vigilance no matter what you're doing and who you are. Think about Moshe and Yeshua. When they were born, entire generations of Jewish male children were murdered. When God is moving, the enemy always counters. So in verse 11 of Nehemiah 2, Nehemiah says, So I reached Jerusalem after I'd been there for three days. I got up during the night, and I and a few men with me, I hadn't told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem, And I didn't take any animal with me except the animal in which I was riding. I went out by night through the valley gate to the dragon's well and the dung gate and inspected the places where the walls of Jerusalem were broken down and where its gates had been burned down. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up the valley in the dark and went on inspecting the wall. Then I turned back, entered through the valley gate, and returned, without the officials knowing where I'd gone or what I'd done. Till then, I hadn't said anything about this to the Judeans, Kohanim, nobles, officials, or anyone who'd be responsible for the work. So we have Nehemiah here working under the radar. He doesn't broadcast his plans or his purposes for being there to limit the opposition. By being tight-lipped, he inhibits the opposition to what God has ordained him to do. 
And verse 17 of Nehemiah 2, afterwards I said to them, you see what a sad state we are in, how Yerushalayim lies in ruins with its gates burned up. Come, let's rebuild the wall of Yerushalayim so that we won't continue in disgrace. Verse 18, he said, I also told them of the gracious hand of my God that had been on me and also what the king had said to me. They said, let's start building at once and energetically set out to do this good work. When Samvalat the Horoni and Toviah the servant, the Ammoni, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they began mocking us and jeering us. What is, it, what is this you're doing? Are you going to rebel against the king? But I answered them, the God of heaven will enable us to succeed. Therefore, we his servants will set about rebuilding, but you have no share, right, or history to commemorate in Yerushalayim. Nehemiah does not engage in word games, vindication, or debate with his opponents or opposition. They don't belong there. They have no legal claim or stake in Jerusalem or Israel. We see the success and victory of a small and weak community due to divine heavenly support and intervention. They do their part and begin the work. Nehemiah does a supernatural job of leading his people in rebuilding the walls around Jerusalem and the city gates. Count all the ways that he was vigilant and looked into this. He planned the task. He shares the vision. He gave specific assignments. He motivated the workers. Remember, they went at this energetically. He overcomes the opposition. He follows through, and then they celebrate the accomplishment. Thanks to his effective leadership, the Israelites, the Judeans, completed a mission that seemed overwhelming at first. Nehemiah was always vigilant. Picking up in chapter 4, starting in verse 1, but when Sanvalot heard they were rebuilding the wall, he was furious. Greatly enraged, he ridiculed the Judeans. Before his kinsmen in the army of Shamran, he said, what are these pathetic Judeans doing? Are they going to rebuild anything they want? Are they going to sacrifice? Are they going to finish today? Are they going to recover useful stones from the piles of roll, burned rubble at that? Tovai the Ammoni was with him, and he said, whatever they're building, why, if even a fox went up to it, he'd knock their stone wall down. Verse 4, our God, listen, we're being treated with contempt. Turn back their jeers on their own heads. Give them over to be plundered in a land of exile. Don't cover their guilt. Don't let their sin be wiped out from before you, because they have insulted the builders to their face. So he kept building the wall, which was soon joined together and completed to half its height all the way around, because the people worked with a will. But when Sanvalat, Toviah, the Arabs, and the Ammonium, and the Ashdodim heard that the repairs in the walls of Yerushalayim were going forward and the breaks were being filled, they became very angry. All of them together plotted to come and fight against Yerushalayim and thus throw us into confusion. However, we prayed to our God, and because of them, organized a watch against them day and night. See, this is vigilance. This is vigilance in its raw form. They prayed, and they come up with a plan. They organized a watch. Verse 10, Judah was saying, the strength of the people who carry loads away is starting to fail, and there's so much rubble that we can't build the wall. Verse 11, our enemies were saying they, don't, they won't know or see anything until we've already infiltrated them and begun killing them and stopping the work. Verse 12, and even the Judeans living near them came and must have said to us 10 times from every place we must come back to us. So in the lower parts of the space behind the wall, I stationed men according to their families with their swords, spears, and bows. And after inspecting them, I stood up and addressed the nobles, leaders, and the rest of the people. Don't be afraid of them. Remember Adonai, who's great and fearful, fight for your brothers, sons, daughters, wives, and homes. When your enemies heard that the plot was known to us and God had foiled their plans, we all returned to the wall, everyone to his work. From then on, half my men would do the work, and half of them held the spear, shields, bows, and armor, while the leader stood guard behind the entire house of Judah. They were vigilant. Verse 17, as they continued building the wall, those who carried loads held their loads with one hand and carried a weapon in the other. You know, in my naval career and as a Messianic rabbi, 
I've always endeavored to remain vigilant, to get ahead of issues before they become issues, to communicate with the crew, with your staff, with congregates, get a feel for what's going on, and to look for issues or possible attacks down the pike. If you remain vigilant, you'll stay on top of and even ahead of the issues. Now, I want to share this. On my last submarine, I had a nickname. And you may or may not believe this, and some of you will chortle when you hear this. They called me the motivator. They even made me a ship's name tag with this moniker. If any division was having an issue, no matter where in the ship, they would send me there temporarily to square them away and fix the issue and resolve it and get them back up to speed. But see, I already knew what the issues were before they sent me there. And the problem was before I got there because I always remained vigilant. It's the same within the congregation. By being vigilant, by being aware, we stay ahead of issues before they occur. Even in your business, you can look down the road and see what's coming. Have your thumbprint on the economy and understand if you're in the building trade, is it getting better, is it getting worse, that you can be proactive and react before it comes to you. It's hard to understand that not everyone in the kingdom is with you or for you. So many people retain unhealthy and non-biblical agendas and motives that drive people to turn against you, like Sam Vlat and Tovaya. They remain quiet until you try to improve things, then they become enraged and plot against you. Being vigilant allows one to be relevant. We stayed ahead of the power curve during the pandemic, and I've shared this before, but the the staff here was so phenomenal. We, We called together captains and put them over 10 to 15 people, and over the captains, we had a captain. And so every week, we called each congregate weekly to check on them, to ask if they had any needs, to pray. We pulled resources. And if you remember those days when you couldn't get toilet paper, we had cases of toilet paper, paper towel. We pulled our resources, and we came through this without so much as a hiccup. And we would pray with them, and we would interact, because it's really about the fellowship. And so we had friends and neighbors of our congregates that asked to be on our call list. And here's what's sad. No one from their congregations checked on them. Many said their pastors didn't even comment on the pandemic from the pulpit. Being vigilant allows us to see the changes coming, both good or bad, which allows us to prepare for whatever is coming, to take appropriate necessary actions in response to whatever change is coming. By being vigilant, Nehemiah was able to continue to work while having a rapid response plan for trouble. In Nehemiah 4, starting at verse 18, is for the construction workers, each one had a sword sheathed at his side. That is how they built. The man to sound the alarm and the shofar stayed with me. And I said to the nobles, the leaders, and the rest of the people, this is a great work, and it's spread out. We're separated on the wall, one far from another. But wherever you are, when you hear the sound of the shofar, come to that place to us, and our God will fight for us. Verse 21, so we kept doing the work. Half of them held spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. Also at that time, I told the people that everyone with a servant stay the night within Yerushalayim so that at night there could be a guard for us, even as they worked during the day. Verse 23, I, my kinsmen, my servants, and my bodyguards never took off our clothes, and everyone who went to get water took his weapon. Throughout this entire reconstruction process, they remained vigilant. Armed with swords, spears, and a shofar to warm of impending danger, they worked with zeal and diligence. Nehemiah had to go back to his former assignment. Remember, it was we read earlier, he had to give the king a time frame. He had to go back to being Babylonian's uh, cupbearer. Undoubtedly, having a great sense of victory and gratification about these accomplishments that he and the nation of Judah had achieved. However, sometime later, he returns to Jerusalem, and to his disappointment, his dismay, he discovers serious issues that had developed in his absence. For starters, Eliashev the Kohen had done for Toviah, Nehemiah's enemy, 
by preparing a room for him in the courtyards of the house of God. The people had stopped tithing, so the Levites and musicians left to take secular work to provide for the families. They were neglecting their service in the temple. Even the worst, the people were profaning Shabbat. People were treading wine press on Shabbat, also bringing in heaps of grain and loading donkeys with it. Likewise, wines, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, and they were bringing them into Jerusalem on the day of Shabbat, while foreign merchants were bringing their wares in on Shabbat. Then the people came involved in intermarriage between the men of Judah and the foreign women who followed foreign gods. It says in verse 24 of Nehemiah 13, their children who spoke half in the language of Ashdod and couldn't speak in the language of the Judeans spoke but only in the language of each people. Here's the key. After a victory or success, there's a temptation to rest. There's a temptation to say, wow, we did it. Nehemiah's experience illustrates that leadership requires constant vigilance. Vigilance has no rest. No matter how significant the accomplishment, leaders always face a temptation to let up because of the joy of victory and the exhaustion from all the work. So they're eager to rest. Nehemiah could have easily thrown up his hands in defeat, come back to his Babylonian government job and said, I'm done. But he didn't. The ever vigilant Nehemiah took swift, decisive, even dramatic action to correct these issues. He purified the temple, reinstituted the tithe, demanded Shabbat be kept and set the people back on the right track. He wrote in verse 30, So I purified the priests and the Levites of everything foreign and assigned them duties each to his own task. Godly, long-term leaders must demonstrate the same tireless vigilance. The truth is leadership requires constant vigilance. Even in the best of organizations, leaders must correct mistakes every day. They face disgruntled people and financial issues. Staying vigilant allows issues to be dealt with while they're still minor. And good leaders must always remain vigilant, never getting discouraged or worse, becoming complacent. It requires having one's eye in the big picture at all times while unceasingly looking forward, searching for issues or concerns. At the end of their day, they can plead their case as did Nehemiah at the end of his book. Remember me with favor, my God. In summing this up, what distinguishes a world-class athlete from hundreds of thousands who never quite make it is situational awareness and vigilance. Wayne Gretzky remains the greatest hockey player to have ever played the game. Wayne often attributed his success to advice his father gave him when he was a boy. Skate to where the puck is going, not where it's been. This required more than sheer speed or skillfulness, which Gretzky has in abundance. It required keen vigilance, constant awareness, and quick decisions. Gretzky had a unique sense of the game, of how players moved across the ice, how plays developed, and of where the puck would head. Most often, he would get there first, which is why he remains the all-time points leader with no close competition. This is why he's simply known as the great one in hockey circles. If you're going to run the good race, as Shaul states, you need to be vigilant, to have situational awareness. You need to know that you are in spiritual war, facing constant challenges from the enemy. You need to know where they're most likely to attack and where you're most likely to succumb to their unrelenting temptations. You must be vigilant, expecting ways of assault and availing yourself to the full armor of God in Ephesians 6. It's important to be vigilant in an ever-changing world which requires you to be adaptable, willing to change when it's necessary. Remember Kodak? They didn't catch this. When we started ministry in the year 2000, the internet was still dial-up. We made VHS tapes of the services and cassettes of the audio. Oh, how times have changed. Vigilant leaders make a practice of being alert with great intentionality, open and deeply curious so that they can detect and act on the earliest signs of any threat or opportunity, to be able to discern and seek new things that are good. They teach others to be vigilant, staff, employees, and congregates by modeling vigilance. Nowhere is this more important than our cyber and physical security. 
Vigilance is required to identify, isolate, and mitigate any and all threats to our congregation whose salvation, health, and safety is our number one concern, and to do so with training, strength, integrity, and respect. Ms. Boka, we need vigilance in every area of our life. I pray the Lord God of Israel would give you deep insight as a watchman, as a watchwoman, that you'll see what's coming and be prepared and ready because the kingdom of God requires vigilant watchmen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Shalom. Shalom.